Welcome to Religionish. I'm Ashley Campbell, and I'm excited to introduce a new series to the show. Books have been a huge part of my life since I was a kid, and it's always fun, at least fun for me, to nerd out with someone about your favorite story. It's even better when you get to talk to the author. Religionish now has a book club. Every month, I'll speak with the author of a book about religion. And if you subscribe to the newsletter, you'll know which book we'll be discussing in advance, so you can read along with me and actually submit a question or two to the author. So let's be religion nerds and kick off the Religionish Bookshelf series with this great conversation I had with Rebecca Davis. I'm Rebecca Davis. I teach history at the University of Delaware. I've written a book called Public Confessions, the religious conversions that changed American politics. So histories of gender, sexuality, religion, the United States is generally where I spend my time. I'm curious how you first came across this topic for the book, um, religious conversions. Um, I mean, I, mainly because in reading it, the different uh, examples you use, I never would have put together the examples of like Claire Luce and Sammy, Sammy Davis Jr. and Susan Atkins. It's not an obvious collection of people to look at together. <laughs> to say the least, right. So I had no idea that this was the project I was embarking on. I think that this is a project that's very much about the archival digging that historians do and the surprises that we find along the way. I was broadly interested in doing something on sexuality and religion in the 20th century, but I didn't quite know how to get there. And for whatever reason, I was at the Library of Congress. I don't know why I thought I would find what I needed there. And I was using their catalog with keyword terms like Bolshevism and sexuality and religion. And very little came up except for the papers of Claire Booth Luce. And I didn't know much about her at all at the time. And I was immediately drawn in. First of all, she left nearly 800 boxes of papers to the Library of Congress. She was a two-term member of Congress. She wrote these very renowned plays, The the Women, which was the first all-female cast of a show performed on Broadway. Um, And she was a war correspondent, and she just had this really incredible life. And in 1946, she converted to Roman Catholicism under the tutelage of Fulton Sheen, who was one of Uh, He was not yet on television. There really wasn't television in 1946. Uh, He was on the radio, um, but by the early 1950s, he was the television uh, priest. He was all over. He had a regular Sunday program that was watched by millions of people. So she was both famous herself and ran in circles with lots of other very uh, well-known people. And so I spent a lot of time going back and forth from my home outside Philadelphia and the Library of Congress and reading in her papers. And that's where the project began, trying to figure out why her conversion was so important to her that she used it to make speeches in front of all these different organizations about why everyone should convert. And the main reason she gave why everyone should convert to Catholicism was that it would provide each individual with sort of like armor against the possible corruptions of their minds and souls by communism. All right, quick rewind moment. If you aren't familiar with the religious politics of the Cold War, here's a super quick highlight summary. 
the U.S. did a really great job of using religion as a way to delineate between patriots and communists. Atheism was seen to be inherent to communism in the U.S., while a quote-unquote good patriot and U.S. citizen had religion. Of course, having religion was not all-inclusive, since, let's be real, anti-Catholicism and anti-Semitism were common at the time. And as Rebecca will mention later in this episode, a form of Protestantism takes on the identity of being pure religion. In many ways, the U.S. framed the Cold War as a holy war against godless communism. It's also at this time that Congress inserted under God into the Pledge of Allegiance and in God we trust to the dollar bill. All right, let's get back to Rebecca. And there was sort of a quite far-reaching reaction among American Protestants to the fact that she had done this. So I am fascinated by this and I keep researching it. And I start researching other converts to Catholicism from the 40s and 50s. And um, I start thinking about, well, who else converted in ways that were controversial? So one of the other things, too, that kind of initially drew me to this book was the relationship between two very key words, um, confession and conversion. Um, Since I do a lot of work on religion and politics, I've always been fascinated with the role of conversion narratives in American politics and the kind of embedded Protestantism, um, an approach to religion and conversion from a Protestant perspective that happens in these very public performances of conversion, even, you know, even for somebody like um, Claire Booth Luce or um, Sammy Davis Jr., who aren't necessarily converting, they're not converting to a Protestant sect, but they are still doing these public performances of conversion. So I I think uh, it would be helpful for, because, you know, not everyone who listens to this podcast is actually a scholar, um, but kind of to set the terms of how you use conversion and confession in your book and kind of what their relationship is to each other. Because um, I, I do know we have uh, – some people who might hear those two words and be like, well, what does confession have to do with conversion other than it's a step in the process? That's a great question. I think if I were, so think about how I, how I can answer this. I spent a lot of time at the beginning of this project trying to figure out what conversion means. And there are basically two different ways of thinking about conversion from a sort of sociological standpoint. One is that you leave... Um, either atheism or a distinct faith and join another faith, right? This is sort of the uh, journey, right? The conversion mm-hmm. movement. And this comes from, in some ways, a sort of pre-Christian idea of conversion is either the the heathens are brought in or that there were completely different religious groups or tribes that one could then move across, um, and this is about sort of leaving behind an old, your, probably the faith of your family or the community that you're a part of and becoming part of a completely different faith community. So that's one way of thinking about conversion. And that's sort of what Sammy Davis Jr. did. That's what mm-hmm. Muhammad Ali did. And for um, a lot of the people who convert to Judaism, that's you know, it's really leaving behind one faith to become another. 
there's a totally different way of thinking about conversion, which I confess I found extremely confusing when I started graduate school, which is the evangelical conversion, where the person is actually sort of already Christian, right? They are yeah. part of a Christian family. They go to church already. Um, and as I'm, I'm Jewish, and I was sort of like, I don't, wait, but they, what are they converting to, right? Because they're already, what does that mean that they're converting? And it's using the word conversion, I think, in a really distinct way. It's about a more intimate experience of being saved, of having this personal relationship with Jesus Christ, of having the sense of being fully committed and entering into a relationship with the divine that sets your life on a different course, right? So people who talk about evangelical conversions do talk about it as a turn in the road, right? That they were on one mm -hmm. kind of path and then they had this experience and now they're headed in a direction that is more aligned with what they understand to be the path that God wants for them or the path away from sin and toward salvation. So I struggled for a long time to think about how can I talk about, can you actually talk about all of these things as part of the same subject matter? And I kind of gave into it because the problem is that in American conversation, no one makes that distinction, right? We talk about it all as conversion. And so I tried in the book to clarify the different ways people were using the term. And confession comes in in the sense that many of these people, as part of the public work that they did from their conversions, went uh, in front of, went, I'm sitting here looking at a microphone. No, they went, they sat at tables in front of, you know, at congressional hearings before microphones mm -hmm. and confessed to the things that they had done uh, before their conversions. They wrote at great length, uh, whether Thomas Merton or Claire Booth Luce or some of these others, about their pre-conversion lives. They confessed to the things that they had done. So uh, whether that be being secularists or uh, atheists, uh, to you know, one of the words that comes up a lot is materialism. And yes. communism is associated with materialism. And for many of these folks, conversion was about confessing to the false ideology of materialism and explaining how that would only lead you to totalitarianism, to inhumanity, and that it was through conversion that they were now on a different path. Yeah, I think that that's, the confession is part of the making public of the conversion. The conversion. And it's the yeah. public work of those conversions that really interested me uh, the more I got into this project. Yeah, no, I, I think it's fascinating. I kind of want to dig into um, some of the themes, and I'm obviously going to pick and choose the ones that relate to my curiosity. So, <laughs> um, but uh, I definitely see like kind of the overarching theme of this book as being kind of the relationship one, that religion is political and that how politics, like the politics of faith relate to race, gender, sexuality, capitalism, and public life in this country. And I think in particular in the United States, it's a very strong distinction. One of the things that I'll say that I have learned also from historians of more contemporary events and from sociologists of American religion who are studying current events uh, 
And what I've definitely seen in my own research um, to, into decades prior is the degree to which assertions of racial and sexual privilege have been woven into religious expression. So that mm-hmm. one of the things I try to show in the book is how to be authentically born again and to, to have a particular sexual self-presentation, uh, se- sexual identity presentation, to have a particular racial politics get kind of tied up in a bow. Um, yes. So that in a way that I don't fully understand, and I will leave it to the sociologists and historians of the last 30 years to help us all understand professing the sexual politics and the racial politics without actually having the religious knowledge becomes enough to be authentically of that faith. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's one part of it that I find that the, that the, the sort of, um, and this is, you know, this is, anyway, I'll leave that there because other people have done deep work in that. Well, I was going to say, to bring it back to your book too, yeah. I think a good example of that from your book it is your conversation about um, Marilyn Monroe and um, Elizabeth Taylor. Elizabeth Taylor. Yeah. And, and kind of, yes, it, uh, but also in kind of the inverse of they were performing a form of being Jewish that was acceptable to the lot larger uh, Christian mm-hmm. community in the United States. Yes. I mean, there's, so for them, I mean, a lot of, um, there's this really pronounced misogyny in a lot of mainstream American Jewish culture in the 20th century, epitomized by the fiction of uh, Philip Roth and his portrayals of Jewish women. And this is completely mainstreamed in American Jewish arts and letters. And he is, you know, heralded as this great American Jewish writer who is vicious toward the women he writes about and is in his personal life, not necessarily so great either. Mm-hmm. So we see with the conversions of Marilyn Monroe and Elizabeth Taylor, this, uh, thrill among some American Jewish men that here, finally, we have sexy Jewish women, right? Uh, And the rabbi who is present at at Elizabeth Taylor's conversion is like, this is what we want Jewish people to look like. Great, because we can use you as like this spokesperson now for a new kind of Jewish woman. And Mm -hmm. Jewish writers are saying, isn't this so great? Marilyn's been domesticated. She's going to you know, cook and, uh, you know, make Arthur dinner. She's marrying, she married Arthur Miller uh, and learn, you know, his mother's gefilte fish recipe. And I think that in some ways that points to an American Jewish longing for their, for an alternate reality, right? Not that there is, that they want their authentic representation right, to be other than what they think it is. Connecting all of these things, I also see is the question of authenticity. And as somebody who's done work in media and religion, 
and that this question of authenticity comes up a lot. I would love if you could kind of explain how you saw authenticity um, come into play when looking at the politics of religion in public life. That was a piece of the story that came pretty late in the research process. And I had been thinking my way toward it. And if I look back, there were early titles of this book, True Believers. Um, I had early versions of the title had the word loyalty or something in it. I was trying to tease out, what are, what are they talking about? Like, what is this preoccupation? And I, no term is perfect and no term is going mm -hmm. to capture all the nuances. Those get untangled, I hope, in the chapters themselves. But the idea of authenticity provided a cohesion to this project as the more that I thought about what they're arguing against, right? They're arguing against ideas of being captive to an ideology. So they're professing this as an alternative to being brainwashed. They're professing this as an alternative to being someone who's whose soul has been or whose behaviors have been coerced. Um, and they're really insisting that it's their faith that makes them authentic. It's their faith that gives them their access to truth, only to have this conversation come right back at them that questions that. So the authenticity is impossible to establish. It's never clear, and it's it's um, and each one of the people that I study speaks with what they feel is an authentic voice. I I you know I am convinced that they're all speaking their truth, uh, and each one of them faces criticisms that they are in fact merely mouthpieces for someone else's ideas, or that they have you know Muhammad Ali is the first of these folks where the word brainwashed is used to describe the conversion. But even before that, there were so many fears of sort of communist mind control that there are these, you know, and, and before that, you know, for Luce and for people of her generation, fascism was, was initially the tyrannical ideology to which millions of people seem to succumb, right? And so mm -hmm. how do we, if we suddenly feel, our, feel ourselves passionately committed to a new set of ideas, how do we prove to ourselves and to the world that this is something we've chosen, that this is, these are the actions of a free will and not that we've been uh, duped into mm -hmm. something. Um, and overlaying that was this fear that there were people who pretended to be one thing, but were in fact the opposite. And we're doing yes. so very subversively to try to uh, undermine American democracy. So this fear of, you know, communist spies and so on uh, in our midst. So there's really two fears. There's one that an individual's mind might have been so infected by these nefarious ideas that the person themselves doesn't realize, you know, the man, the, the Manchurian candidate type thing, the person yeah. who's just controlled by others and doesn't realize it. And the second fear is that there are people like the candidate's mother in that, in that book and film who are in fact agents of sort of a nefarious operation who are manipulating the people around them. Mm -hmm. And so I think that ultimately what I argue is that by the 1970s, conservative white evangelical Protestants succeed 
far greater than any of the other people I've been looking at in making this case that they are authentically their religious selves and that their voice is an authentic one. It's a true one so that the depth of their spiritual commitment is unquestioned. Uh, And I found that really fascinating and then tried to think about how how these other conversions and the responses to them led up to that development. Yes. Well, okay. So you're touching upon, I think, potentially my favorite subtopic throughout the book. And maybe it's not so much of a subtopic, but um, is that relationship between white Protestantism and the identity of America. And so I think in your epilogue, one of the things that I really liked was, I'm going to quote, I'm going to read a a quick sentence. Um, It's debates about religious, religious authenticity raise questions about the fitness of certain faiths for democracy, the security of the nation's government and the role of religion in shaping public life. And I, one, I loved that sentence because I think it sums up that kind of train of thought with regards to religion and democracy, but also how much this practice and this negotiation of religion and democracy in this country continues to be a part of our public conversations. Um, so I'll, I'll stop narrating, but I think I, I just, I wanted to say, I, I think that was a very interesting theme and I know you're a historian. I study contemporary stuff, so I'm just making all these connections and, and I, I think it's interesting too, because then you bring in, um, the fact that all of these people are doing it publicly, whether it's on radio or television or, you know, magazines or books. And so trying to perform authenticity, especially if they're on the margins, but also connect their mar- their faith that's considered to be on the margins of mainstream American society as legitimate traditions within democracy. And I think that to me is really interesting of how authenticity, religion, media all come together in an attempt to, it's not just, oh, I'm authentically this faith. I wasn't brainwashed. I am intelligent. I did come to this decision of my own. But also, let me tell you how my religion now connects to democracy. It is not a threat to democracy. It supports democracy. And how that was also a necessary part of all these public confessions. Yes, yes. And that was, um, I'm so glad that you find that part of the book useful. It was, there's so much conversation in the sources I was reading about freedom, about democracy, and that even if those weren't the questions that I brought to the project initially, as I was digging into it, as I was reading all those primary sources from the archives and from newspapers and magazines, um, you can't help but notice the way that this is coming up. And what I found really interesting too was the language of choice versus captivity, which was another mm-hmm. flip, another piece of that story that comes again from pushing back against this idea of being um, captive, not only as in being imprisoned, but having a captive mind. And there was also the fear that television and pop culture were uh, 
cap, you know, holding Americans' minds captive. We were becoming automatons who just did whatever the advertisers told us to do. And um, this idea of religion being this route to, again, authenticity, a route to living an authentic life that's not imposed through consumer goods, um, even as religion is itself completely participating in that same consumer culture. To be clear, there is, and, and I think there's, there's also this attempt by a lot of these religious spokespeople to set religion apart, to say that religion is this separate thing. So all this other stuff might be going on in the world with politics, with you know, civil unrest, with um, movements for social change. And religion is this thing apart that kind of has a purifying power. Like you can, you can enter into the religion, whatever you've done before, you're going to convert and come out the other side of it, renewed and pure and um, sort of healed of whatever's happened before. And it, that is contrasted to folks who are captive, who are in some way coerced or constrained in their abilities to make choices. Um, and so the language of choice is not the same thing as the language of democracy. Um, yeah. you can, so I do think that I, you know, there, I hope another project will move further from the, into the nineties and, and aughts with, with these questions about sort of what happens, you know, I, I trace a little bit of it at the end of the book, but it was beyond the, the scope of my project. Choice and democracy are two different things. And the, the public conversation on religious authenticity that I observe has moved more toward this language of choice um, uh, by the early 1980s. And I think that that's something worth thinking about. What was your favorite thing uh, about working on this project? Hmm. I mean, I, I, one of the things I loved most about working on this book, initially it annoyed me, is that I would say, oh, I'm working on conversion. And people would say, oh, are you reading about, and they'd read, name like two or three famous American religious converts. And sometimes that was helpful. Initially, I was annoyed. I was like, no, I, I actually have my own project figured out. I don't need your <laughs> suggestions of who I should study. And so, <laughs> though sometimes it was helpful. Um, and mm -hmm. eventually, though, I came to really appreciate it as like, no, I'm not that person. I know who that person is, but I've decided they're not part of this book. Um, but I think you've proven my point that yeah. we have been, so people who write about American religion have not written enough about religious conversion. It is one of the defining features of the American religious experience. Uh, Americans convert religion, convert to religion, convert out of religion, convert from one religion to the other all the time. And it, you, you know, talk to anybody, other people say, oh, right. Yeah. My grandmother, she was a this, and then she became a that, or, oh yeah, my, my nephew. Right. So everyone either had, um, if I was talking to say, historians or religious studies scholars, they would name some famous person who had converted. Yep. And if I was talking to sort of friends and neighbors, they would start telling me stories from their families about people who had converted. And was I writing about that kind of thing too? And the answer was usually no, because it was a very, you know, uh, narrowly defined project in that way. Um, but I mean, in my own family, there are multiple layers of religious conversion in my mm -hmm. family history. And um, I think that's true of many of us. And so that to me is ultimately what I've loved most about this project is talking to people and seeing 
so many people's eyes light up and be like, oh yeah, right, conversion. You know, I need to know more about that because all these people in my family did it. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, I think that's a good plug for the book. You need to know about conversion, everybody. So you should go read it. <laughs> and we need to know more. Uh, you're a nerd. A nerd. You're a nerd. Uh, so lastly, I I just want to ask you because uh, I'm I'm a big nerd. I identify as a religion nerd. Nerding out is important to me, and I think a part of this podcast. Is there anything lately that you've kind of been nerding out about? And do you mean this in terms of scholarship or just sort of outside of anything. work? Could be anything. Like I've lately been getting into like sci-fi novels. So <laughs> trying to think. I this this has kept me pretty busy. <laughs> um, I don't know. What you mean you, you mean research takes over your whole life? It does. It does. The other thing, I mean, the other hat I wear is that I'm a historian of sexuality in the United States. So I'm working on a new sort of narrative history on that topic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've become, I've been nerding out on, uh, this is really, this is really niche. I mean, I've been nerding out on new indigenous studies and the new, new indigenous histories. So this totally dynamic, fascinating wave of scholarship that's using archaeology and anthropology, um, oral histories, as well as any surviving documents, maps, um, you know, folklore, to recreate histories of uh, indigenous nations prior to European arrival or in the context of European arrival and and colonial um, and settler colonialism. And so because I'm for my new book, I'm writing a lot about early America, and you know my specialty has been the 20th century. So, I it's the some of the most fascinating, beautifully written, sort of morally compelling work that I have read, and I keep finding myself going back and picking up more of those books and wanting to learn more. What's a what's a good example to kind of direct people to? Um, one of my faves is by is Lisa Brooks, Our Beloved Kin. It won the Bancroft. This is not like an unknown book. It won the Bancroft Prize in 2019, right? So it's a well-recognized book, recipient of uh, very prestigious accolades. Um, But she looks at um, Native New England, but it's even, you enter the book and she uses all the place names that the indigenous peoples used for those Mm -hmm. place names, right? So we don't hear the, don't hear about New England. Right. We don't hear about Massachusetts Bay. We hear um, about the the naming of places as part of colonialism. And mm-hmm. um, it, I, I don't know. It's it's a it's captivating. She's a I think she's in an English department, professor of English and American studies. OK, so um, but there's there's so there's there are many others and they're um, a whole different way of thinking about what it meant when these Puritans got off and decided they were going to, you know, show that they were this righteous settlement mm-hmm. by converting all the Native people they met to Protestantism. I'll have to check these out. Uh, so real quick, before you go, uh, could you tell us a little bit about the podcast that you help produce? We can, you know, podcast plug. Yeah, great. <laughs> So I am a producer and I'm also the story editor for Sexing History, 
which is a podcast about how the history of sexuality shapes our present. Each episode has a narrative as well as lots of archival sound to take listeners into stories about the histories of belly dancing in the United States and sort of the sexualization of of a Middle Eastern dance form to histories of evangelical marital advice or Mm -hmm. um, controversies around abortion provision, all kinds of topics to the, one of my favorite episodes was about um, sex phone operators. And we interviewed people who had worked as, as the operators And it was everything from a woman talking about, look, you know, it was flexible hours. I had young kids and I could like set them up in front of the TV in one room and like go do my shift as a sex phone operator in the other. I didn't have to leave my house. I didn't have to find childcare to men who were sex phone operators and talked about what it was like in the late 80s and 90s in New York City with lots of men who were very sick or whose Uh, lovers had died from complications of AIDS and what it was like to, or who were healthy, but terrified of having Mm -hmm. sexual contact. And so we're using the sort of oral intimacies of phone sex as a way to have a a kind of emotional sexual intimacy. And so that, that was absolutely, I think that's probably my, my very favorite episode because Again, it's an example of taking something we think we know about and looking at it from the other perspective, right? Not how it was regulated, not, you know, who were the people calling in or how much money did it make, but thinking about, um, I mean, people talk about how their voices got so tired, that there was actually a physical element, that it was an exhausting form of labor that they Mm -hmm. were doing, um, providing these narratives to their callers. Well, thank you so much for uh, talking with me about your book. Thank you for having me on your podcast. I think it's terrific that you're doing this, and I'm glad you're getting it going again. That wraps up our show. Thanks for listening to Religionish, your nerdy podcast about how religion impacts society. If you enjoyed this show, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, anywhere. This podcast is a solo project of love by me, Ashley Campbell. Your reviews really help the show reach more people and let me know what works and what doesn't. And if you do review, you may hear your reviewer handle right here, this point at the end of the show. The music for Religionish was performed by Dan Paulhammer and Joe Nicola. You can find this episode's show notes at religionish.com, and you can reach out to the pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just search Religionish Podcast. Have a happy Halloween, everyone. Seriously, try saying that three times fast. Religionish Bookshelf, Religionish Bookshelf, Religionish Bookshelf. Ugh.